So, do all of you have your believe books with you today? Hope you do. Should look like this. And if you don't have one yet, we still have those available after church today. If you'd like to pick one up, uh, just let us know. Um, also, there's a study guide, and if you've uh, received that, you may or may not realize that there's a journal page at the end of each chapter. It's just kind of an open page where you could take sermon notes or you could put in your uh, uh, lessons from when your group gets together, uh, whatever may be helpful to you, and encourage you to do that as well. Today's journal page for this second lesson is on page 25, for instance. I want to start off with a kind of a couple pictures here. Uh, Bill Burnett uh, described how big God is with pictures. And he described the Whirlpool Galaxy. How many of you have ever heard that before? Some of you have, if you're into astronomy at all. This galaxy is called the darling of astronomy. And the reason why it is sitting completely perpendicular to us here on Earth. So when you look up at it with this powerful telescope, whatever you may have, you get this great view of the Whirlpool Galaxy. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Uh, now, what I want you to really be amazed by is how far away it is. <laughs> because this galaxy is 31 million light years away. 31 million light years from where we are sitting right now. So let me describe that. If you, just, if you were able to travel 186,000 miles per second, that's the speed of light, and you did that for 31 million years, you'd get there. A light year is how far light travels in a year. That's 5.88 trillion miles. That's how far it travels in a year. So you multiply that by 31 million years, and that's the distance you're going to have to cover in order to get to this galaxy. Now, it's believed that this galaxy, the Whirlpool Galaxy, has about 300 billion stars in it. And get this, it's just one of the hundreds of billions of other galaxies in our universe. Do you think God is big? Do you think God is big? I hope you realize how hard it is for us to realize the size, the vastness of this universe that God has created. It also humbles us, and it helps us to realize how how significant it must be to him that he intersected with planet Earth in the, in the middle of all that. Not even in the middle of it, off to the side of that. Our God is big, and our God is great. Our God is good. Last week, we, we saw how big God is. We were amazed at the breadth and the depth of his abilities, his power. He's very, very big, and yet we will learn this morning, he's very, very personal. He's very, very small in that he comes down to us here on planet Earth, and not only to us on planet Earth, but to this little speck of a person named John among seven billion other people on this planet. Our readings this week began with the stories of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Hagar was Sarah's handmaid. And many generations into the uh, uh, life of mankind, the history of mankind, Abraham came on the scene. His name was Abram first. His wife's name was Sarai. God changed it to Abraham and Sarah. He was born in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, and it's where Iraq is today, if you want to know the part of the world we're talking about. 
So most of us know about Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, the father of faith. And, but let's review his story briefly together because maybe not everybody's up to speed on that. After Abraham has grown and married, he's now 75 years old, God calls him out of his homeland. He calls him to leave that homeland to go to a place where God would show him. His father, Terah, had been a basically good man, decent man, and yet, like his neighbors, worshipped the gods of their area, not the god Jehovah that we worship. Abraham had become a, a wealthy man by this time. He had many sheep and goats, but he and Sarah were still childless. However many years they'd been married, still no children. And at 75 years old, then Abraham picks up everything he owns and leaves town. And he and Sarah arrive uh, in Canaan, many, many miles away after this this long journey God's taken around. He'll say, I'll show you when we get there. I'll show you when we get there. Okay, here's the place. This is the place I was bringing you to. So God has called him. And in this place, the promised land, God covenants with him. God makes an agreement with him. God, God extends to him a, a covenant relationship. And this promised land is where God said, I will create through you a mighty nation of people. I know you're childless yet, but someday you'll have a child, and through that child there will be many, many, many people. You'll never be able to count them. They'll be like the sands of the sea or the stars of the heaven. We just saw the stars of the heaven. Over the next 25 years, God keeps promising Abraham a son and many, many descendants, and it takes a lot of trust for Abraham to hold on to that because 25 years is a long time to wait for something. So it finally comes true at 100. 100 years old. Sarah is 90. How many of you know women who had their first child at 90? Anybody? That's unheard of. Unheard of. This doesn't happen, but it did here. Through many experiences, including battles with his neighbors and, and uh, back and forth with a lot of different people around him, God did a third thing with Abraham. He cared for him. So he called him, he covenanted with him, he cared for him. This is the kind of spiritual journey that God would like to take all of us on if we are willing, if we are accepting of that, if we receive that. So here's Abraham, this great man of faith, and we may have trouble identifying with him because, and look what God did. Look what happened. Look where it went. Look what became of Abraham's descendants. And we, we stand back in amazement of what God has done through this man. And we think, I can't do that. I, I could never fit that. I would never be an Abraham. I would never be a Sarah. And we maybe maybe get a little bit, uh, you know, uh, resistant to God's whole thing about, you know, calling us, covenanting with us, caring for us. Hey, that's good for Abraham, but not me, not little old me. How could anything like that ever happen to me? But off to the side of this story is where we began this week. And I was, was really curious, why did we start here? Why did they choose the scripture they did from Genesis 16? Here is the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar is the handmaiden to Sarah. She's a nobody in this story. She's a slave. She just attends to her, her mistress, to Sarah, to take care of her, whatever she wants. That's what she's going to do. And suddenly she enters this story... And partway through these 25 years where they're waiting for a child after God has promised one, Sarah gets this idea. He says, maybe, you know, as other people do, you can have a child through my handmaid and it will count as my child. So why don't you go in, Abraham, sleep with Hagar, 
and, and if she gets pregnant, she can have a child, and that will be the child. Maybe this is the way God is going to work this thing. And so Abraham agrees to that. He sleeps with Hagar. She conceives. And almost as soon as she gets pregnant, she starts giving Sarah a hard time. Yeah, I'm pregnant. You couldn't. You couldn't get pregnant, but here, suddenly I am. You see, the problem's not Abraham. The problem's you. You know, whatever might have been said. What do I have been intimated even just through her looks, you know, and her attitude? And so Sarah goes kind of crazy about this attitude, and she says, I want her out of here. And Abraham throws this lady, Hagar, out of the house. I want us to read down at Genesis 16, starting with verse 7. After Hagar has been thrown out into the wilderness, page 31, if you're following along in the Believe book, starts this way. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that's beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant. You will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Hang on to that. Because here this nobody named Hagar, the, the God of the universe, saw and heard her prayer. That is why the well was called Beer Lehi Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Barrett. So Hagar bore Abram's son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. It would be another 13, 14 years before Isaac comes along between Abraham and Sarah. Now here is the answer to this story. Why do we begin with this story? Because God wanted to impress upon us that the nobodies are also heard. Not just the people of great faith, not the people that we would admire like Abraham, but the people like Hagar that otherwise we would discount. We would say, she's just kind of a sideline here of this story. She's kind of an inconsequential part of the story. I says, no, she's part of the story. Like the psalmist in Psalm 8 we also read, we have all wondered at one time or another, what is man that you are mindful of him? With the whole universe to govern and watch over God, how could you have time to be involved in and care, care about my little life? How could you reach down to me? How could you hear me? How could you see me? With over 7 billion on this planet, how could you even know what's going on in my life? And why would you care? And I want you to know this morning that the amazing, majestic, all-powerful, all-knowing, only true God of this universe cares about every human being made in his image. He cares about you. He cares about me. The God of the Bible, who's the only true God we learned about last week, he cares about us and he wants to be involved in our personal lives. When you, when you fail, when you mess up, when you succeed when you have celebration he wants to be a part of all of that so this morning i want us to learn how we might walk in the security and confidence of that awareness of what what that would mean for us if the god of the universe truly 
cares about us, truly wants to be involved in our lives. Three things. First of all, I want you to know God is above us. He is above us. Theologians call this being transcendent. You know, he's, he's up above everything. He's, he's over us. He's beyond us. He lives above and beyond the limits under which we must live every day. He is not bound by time. He is not bound by space. He is not bound by physical pain or weakness or, or exhaustion or any number of other physical limitations that we have. He is above us. He is a person, a being that sees everything. Why? Because he's everywhere at the same time. Wow. He's omnipresent, we say. There's a nice theological word there. He's everywhere at the same time. So he can see, he can observe. When Hagar has a problem, he sees her while he's also watching Abraham and while he's watching people on the other side of the planet. God knows everything, the Bible says. That means he's omniscient. Nothing escapes his awareness. So if he sees everything and he knows everything, can we not trust him? to know what is best for us. Can we not realize he sees the big picture when all we see is this minuscule corner of the canvas? God is great. He's above all. He's not bound by any of the circumstances or events that impact our daily lives. Here's something else. Why would he care about us? Because number two, he is near to us. He chooses to be near to us. Theologians call this God being imminent. He's, he's there. He's, he's with us. He's there. He willingly places himself within the limits of knowledge and experience that we have so that he can care for us. He, he gets down to our level. And while he is in his person, in his strength, in his majesty, above the fray of all the things that in life that, that could overwhelm us and do overwhelm us, he chooses to draw near to us. He chooses to come down, to stoop down to our level, to meet us where we are. And our great God is able to draw close to us, to care for us, and love us with a depth of love that we struggle to understand. There is so much love in God that I don't know if we'll ever get it all, understand it all. And why would he choose to do that? Because he loves us so much. He cares about us so much. The psalmist David expresses incredulity at this in Psalm 8 where he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of him? The human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor. And he, you know, he goes on from there and he says, Why? Why would you do this, God? Randy Frazee points out that God not only knows us, he wants us to know him. <laughs> so this is a big deal. There are not many religions is the, is the God inviting people to know the God at this personal level. This is one of the most unique components of Christian theology. In Islam, for instance, some of you could verify this. Allah can know you, but you can't know him, not personally. You, you cannot pray to Allah. There are chants that you're going to say, but you don't speak directly to Allah in that, that mind, that, in that religion. In Christianity, however, God not only knows us, he emphatically wants us to know him. 
He wants us to know all about Him. He wants us to know Him intimately, personally. He wants a relationship with us like He had with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. You know, when He was back and He would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening, Genesis says. They, they, when, when that fellowship was broken by sin, God immediately confronted Adam and Eve about it. And they, they had run from God. They had hidden from God because they saw nakedness they never knew existed before. God had this closeness, and He wants that closeness back for us to know Him as He knows us. Another way to say this is Jesus' name. Jesus has many names, but there's a name that we, we don't use much except maybe at Christmas time. It's the name Emmanuel. What does it mean, Emmanuel? God with us. Right. God with us. What does that mean? It means He came to be with us. He came to be one of us. And at Christmas time, we celebrate Jesus coming into the world as that helpless infant born in a stable, laid in a manger. And Jesus continued. He lived a human life just like the one we have to live. And even though He's back in heaven now, He fully understands whatever we're going through because He's been there. He's done that. He's lived that. He took on Himself humanity and experienced the full range of emotions and experiences that we humans experience every day except without sin. The book of Hebrews tells us how Jesus, our high priest, can empathize with us because He's faced the same things we face. Listen to Hebrews 4, starting with verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might find mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, there's, there's confidence we can come before God with because of Jesus. And confidence knowing that He knows us. He knows what our lives are like. The nearness of God is also seen in the third, third dimension here in the Holy Spirit. Because as Jesus left this earth, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit back so that you can, be, you can be with him. He can be with you forever. I will not leave you comfortless, he said. I will come to you. And the Holy Spirit comes to us when we become a Christian, when we put our faith in Jesus to save us, as we're going to learn about next week. God sends his Spirit into our lives to live with us forever. This indwelling presence, this indwelling Spirit is with us every moment of every day if we will but remember that He's there. We will live with His uh, presence. If we'll recognize His presence, understand, embrace His presence. God said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus said in the Great Commission, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So God is above us, beyond the reach of our petty limitations, our our, our hurtful circumstances beyond all that, and yet He chooses to come into all that. He chooses to come near to us. And if we can just get to the place where we understand how personal God is, it's going to change everything for you. You can get to the place where you understand God really wants to be in your life, or wants to be part of your life, wants to, to help mold and shape your life and direct your life and, and protect you and, and be with you every moment of every day and carry you safely through until you go into the next life for eternity. It's going to change everything. God is above us. God is near to us. What's more, God has a plan for us.
And here's where theologians say God is providential. God carefully plans. God carefully provides for the future. He's not just near us. He has a plan for our lives from the moment of our creation. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, we read it this week. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The psalmist had this conviction that God knew all about him before he was even conceived. Jeremiah, prophet, said something very similar, didn't he? Jeremiah recognized that. He said in the opening verses of his book, he says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah had a really tough ministry. If you've ever read Jeremiah, you know that he had a lot of ups and downs, mostly downs. He had a lot of people against him because his his job was to, to warn people, to declare that they were sinning against God. And God had exercised judgment in their generation and uh, conquered them because of their sin. And he'd sent a bunch of them away to exile. But one day, God was going to bring them back from Babylon, where they had been exiled. And so Jeremiah spent about 40 years preaching to people who didn't want to hear what he had to say. And they mistreated him, they abused him, almost killed him a few times, put him down in a cistern to live in the mud. And barely gave him enough to eat. It was, a, it was a miserable existence. But at the same time, Jeremiah also had this hopeful message that one day this is going to end. One day God's plan is going to fall into place and you're going to be brought back. And God is going to bless you beyond anything you ever expected. And Jeremiah 29.10 says, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Listen to this. For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call on me, and you will come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from ca- captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God has a plan, a perfect plan for your life and for mine. And he's working out that plan for whoever trusts him, whoever is listening to him, whoever is walking with him. Anybody that follows God has a plan, and God has a good plan. The Apostle Paul assured the the believers of his day of God's great care. He wrote in Romans 8 some powerful verses, 8.28. Some of you already know that. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Go through ups and downs. If you go through trials, if you go through tribulations, God has a plan. And God works for good. So hang on to that when life gets really hard. In that same chapter, Paul continues down to verse 31, chapter 8 of Romans. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Hear that attitude? If you've got God at your back, if you've got God on your side, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Whatever you may be going through, God's got your back. If you're for God, God is for you. 
And then he wraps things up in Romans 8, 37. He says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These verses are just as true for you and me as they were for the Roman Christians. They are just as true in the year 2015 as they were in the year maybe 60 or 70 A.D. They are just as true for the people of this country as they are for any other country. It's the people of God who receive these promises and receive His love. So, what difference does all this make? (laughs) That God is above, that God is near us, that God has a plan. Well, if God is above us, then we need to recognize what the Scripture says to us in several places. God's ways are higher than our ways. God's ways are better than our ways. Isaiah 55, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8, 9. But in this life, when we forget that, we're tempted to get all frantic to make these decisions that are, that are foolish decisions and to jump ahead of God or to lag behind because we can't really see the whole thing that God sees. We can't see around the next bend in the road. God's ways are higher than our ways and so we must yield to His wisdom. We must surrender to His will and we must remember that He sees things from above that we cannot see. Secondly, if God is near to us, then we need to stop worrying so much. Our Sunday school class this morning talked about how worry is really an absence of faith. It's a lack of faith. It's a a weakness of faith when you spend your whole life worrying about stuff and get all anxious and tied up in knots. Jesus said in Matthew 6, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So do not worry, he says. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows already that you need them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. These words about this loving Father paint this vivid picture of a God who is not out to get us, not out to punish it, not out to see where we have failed and we've done wrong and and now judgment falls. This is about a God who sent Himself to redeem us, who paid the price to redeem us. He's not out to destroy us, He's out to restore us, to make us new to make us stronger and better than we ever could have been on our own. And we can trust this kind of a God. He knows us and He cares about us. And if God has a plan for us, then we need to watch for that plan. We need to let Him work that plan out in our lives. We need to give Him that. We need to give Him time to do that. We need to give Him a heart of surrender and humility to do that. Be reminded of this scripture from Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
God began something in you. Now let him continue. Let him work on it. Let him continue developing that in your life. If we truly believe he's involved in and cares about us, then we can know every morning as we wake up that his heart is to show us his plan. Our eyes will be open. Our ears will be open. God, what do you want? What do you want to do here? How can I fit into the big picture that you're creating, this big plan? How can I be part of that and be satisfied that my life is everything that it could be? We can also know that in the tough times and in the blessed times, God will see us through. And he will nurture this deepening relationship with us. But you have to seek him every day. That's what Jeremiah says. Seek me with all your heart and then you will find me. And so just little old me, just little old you, God is willing to do it all for. There's a man in our church. He's here today. I saw him coming in. Some of you know him. He's been around for a long time. In the last eight months, nine months, we thought he was a goner. He got into a really, really difficult place physically. They took him uh, to the hospital. Then they took him to a rehab center for a month. Rehab center says he's not making any improvement. We can't keep him here. Sent him to the hospital. He spent about six or seven months in a hospital. And during that time, uh, I'm thankful that people of this church continued being faithful, visiting him, praying with him, praying for him, doing whatever they could for his mom, uh, who is here without him. This is all kinds of things. But I really think all of us kind of got convinced that's the way it's going to stay. He'll be in a nursing home the rest of his life, however long that may be. It may be months, maybe years, but he will never improve. God had a plan. God had a plan and restored him to much greater health. And he's we're here with us in, in worship today. He walked over from his townhouse today through the woods, across the parking lot, and got in here for worship when we never thought he would walk another day in his life. Now God has a plan for you too. I don't know what else he's going to do for our brother Jeff. I don't know what he's going to do with his life. But he's got a plan for each one of you. A plan for me. And he's not just concerned with the big events of history. He's concerned about the little things, the little details of your life and mine. And he wants you to live out his plan. But we must humble ourselves. We must submit. We must surrender. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless us as we seek you with all of our hearts. That we would not be um, so keen on our own ideas or thoughts or dreams that we'd leave you out. But that we would come in humility to admit our need for you and admit that the best life we could ever live here would be the life that you've designed for us. The life that you have in mind. Because you know so much better than we do. And because you love us more than we even love ourselves, we are amazed at your grace. We are amazed at your love. And we ask, Lord, simply that you would work in our lives as we yield them, as we surrender and submit them to you. Teach us your ways. Uh, help us to grow and develop. Give us strength. Give us courage. Give us joy and peace in knowing you.
even as you know us. In Jesus' name, amen.